Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. This is episode number 124. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avino Malkino, our Father, King, thank you for bringing us together so that we can study and learn of you, so that we can equip ourselves to be kingdom builders, to be partners with you in this, this grand um, uh, uh, assignment to take the gospel, to take the good news around the world. Um, help us, Lord, to continue to be um, ever aware of your presence in our life, to, to continue to live exemplary, to continue to turn from sin, to continue to remind ourselves of the, 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 the uh, awesome uh, sacrifice that you made on our behalf so that we could be brought into this relationship with you, so that we can be filled with your precious Holy Spirit. Let us not uh, forget the fact that grace isn't cheap. I'm reminded of, uh, of the, uh, the sermon that I just got through listening to my, my brother, uh, Rabbi Eduardo Arroyo, over at uh, Bethel Gibor, and the, uh, the sermon that he brought uh, this morning. Um, powerful message that just uh, stirred us uh, to, to, to continue to press in and, and have a genuine relationship with our God uh, through Messiah Yeshua, to not become complacent um, but let, but to just uh, remember that that, that uh, you are the one who makes all things possible in our lives, and that we owe you all of our allegiance and all of our love and all of our adoration. Um, thank you, Lord, for rescuing us from from the awful lives that we we were leading before we found you, uh, bringing us to a place. Uh, it's because of your mercy and your grace, not because of anything that we deserved. Um, uh, thank you that you forgive us on a daily basis, um, but help us to turn from sin so that we uh, don't continue to go back to things that are um, uh, easily besetting and old habits and 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 heartaches and hangups and and headaches and and um, the things that you've rescued us from we don't want to turn back to that again help us to continue to look forward um, bless us during these times help us to become uh, again equipped as we study your words putting them deep in our heart uh, meditating on them dwelling on them putting them into practice allowing your spirit to to activate uh, the the words of truth inside of us so that we can uh, live righteous lives lives that are pleasing to you continue to pray protect us from this uh, this pandemic, uh, continue to give us a hope, even though there doesn't seem to be much hope left in the world, in, from a worldly perspective, there's a, it's just everything so, so dark and, 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 and the desperate and uh, uh, um, confusing, but 
not in you, <laughs> not in you, not in our God. He is light, uh, and He is life, and we will seek Him, and we will plug into Him, and we will turn to Him. Um, thank you for everyone who's listening to the podcast and joining in with the YouTube videos. I'm blessed to be able to speak to them week after week. Uh, continue to um, help me um, strengthen those uh, who are uh, underneath my uh, care at the moment. Uh, bless them for blessing me and uh, continue to protect them. We'll be careful to give you the praise and glory. Amen. Thank you, everyone, for joining me week after week. I'm, I'm off to a rough start uh, this uh, this evening. Um, can't seem to get my notes in order. My 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 uh, bookmarks are going all over the place, and I'm calling off the wrong shows. But let's see if I can uh, uh, make this a little bit better. Uh, my name is Ario Ben Lyman Hanavi, and I'm a Torah teacher at Congregation Kehilatnova in Thornton, Colorado, the Harvest Congregation. You can find us online at graftedin.com, like you can see on my screen right now. And we invite you out. We are meeting in person, and we are meeting online. So uh, head on over to our website and take notice of the recent sermons uh, link right there. You can watch the um, the YouTube videos if you're not quite comfortable uh, going out and meeting people. I've also got my own Torah teaching website at tetzetorah.com. That's spelled T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com. And um, I invite you to go on over to my website and avail yourself of all the resources that I've got available. You can see on my screen right now all of the commentaries and things. Just about everything I do online uh, falls into three formats. There's a written version. There's typically an audio version, like a podcast, an MP3 that you can download and listen to offline. And then lately these days, everything's being turned into a YouTube video of some sort as well. So... Um, Make sure you uh, 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 make yourself uh, make uh, make all of these things available. Make uh, avail yourself of them is what I'm trying to say, um, and just uh, uh, you know uh, download what you'd like, save it to your computer, listen to it later, or share it with your friends. And my resources are there for you to use, and I'm blessed to be able to share them with you. Uh, this is the live internet studies, and as I mentioned, this is episode number 124, if I can get it right. The meeting date is January 16th, 2021, USA date. That's for the recording. Um, and uh, again, I put USA date there in case you're actually able to join me live on the day that I'm actually making the recording. Well, then it's Sunday over here on my side of the world. That would be great if those of you who are on my side of the world joining me as well. We meet each Saturday evening from 7 p.m. to approximately 8 p.m. Central Standard Time, and we cover two 30-minute topics, broadly speaking. Romans 14 Unplugged, Feast and Fast and Food, Oh My, Part 42 tonight. It's what we're going to be studying. And we're going to be finishing up this section where we're talking about the importance of understanding the background of Paul's use of the phrase weak in faith as it plays off of the phrase brother. We'll finish this that part tonight. It's, it's a, We have kind of lay the groundwork and the framework for understanding the, the historical background to Paul's letter and the peoples that he's writing to. We'll look at that tonight. And then then uh, we'll turn to segment two, exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity. Uh, this is an ongoing series. It's been going on for a while, and we'll just keep going until we finish. We're in paper two, Yahweh and Yeshua, part 59 tonight. And as, as the format's going, we just work our way through the... Um, the verses that some people would call Trinity passages, others would use the phrase um, uh, triadic passages, where we have perhaps mentions of Father, Son, Holy Spirit in one verse, or sometimes we have attributes of one person mentioned in one part of the Bible, and then you flip 
a few books, uh, chapters away or whatnot, and you find those same attributes mentioned um, with one of the other persons, which should cause you to realize that we're dealing with one being who is nevertheless um, uh, exists as three separate persons, and yet one God. And that's the, the mystery of, of what we say, the mystery of the Godhead, right? Um, and it is a mystery. But yet, we are able to use our minds to discern um, uh, logically how some of this fits together. Even if we can't put our finger on all of it, nevertheless, we've been given enough information to where we can uh, make an informed decision one way or the other. We've got a feature YouTube video that we're going to watch tonight. We always watch a little video, sometimes two. This time, we're going to be watching a passage out of uh, a little explanation, um, a little teaching out of Deuteronomy 4, 5 through 8, Israel's call to greatness. And in my liturgy, I'll read not 5 through 8, but I'll actually read uh, chapter 6. So that's the, uh, the, 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 those are the announcements. Um, should I mention the YouTube videos now? Yeah, I think I will mention them now. Head on over to my YouTube channel when you get a chance so you can check out all the videos that I post to YouTube. You can find me online at youtube.com forward slash C for the word channel forward slash Tetsay Torah Ministries. And, um, I encourage you to avail yourself of all the videos, the playlists, the um, the resources that I've got available there. Uh, make sure you do four things for me. Number one, make sure you subscribe so that you are a part of the community. Number two, hit the little bell so that you can receive notifications. Uh, number three, uh, hit the little um, like button because I'm confident you're going to like the videos that I'm producing, right? And then number four, um, share the content with your uh, friends and family members, people on social media and things like that. That would be a blessing uh, if you want to share all that with you. I mentioned the live studies and I forgot to mention how you can join us. I apologize. Let me jump backwards to this for a second. Uh, we meet uh, each week via Skype. And if you can get Skype on your computer, that would be great, but I don't think you need it, actually. The group Skype link is the most important thing you're going to need. And you can send me an email. If you're on this webpage that you're seeing right now on my on your screen, you can click the little link right there that says email. It's a different colored word. And if you click that, it'll um, send me an email. Otherwise, go to my website at tatesaytor.com, scroll down to the very bottom of the webpage to that black section where it says weekly parasha archives. Scroll down there, and there's a button on the upper right upper right side. It looks like an envelope. Click that. See where the little red uh, arrow is pointing right now? It says email button. That is my email. Click it. Send me an email. Tell me you'd like to join the live studies. I'd be more than happy to send you the Skype link. It's free. Uh, you can join for free. I don't charge anything or anything like that. So that's great. And then, as I always mention, while you're down on that part of the screen, um, look at that little yellow donate button. Look at that thing. It's just jumping off the screen at you. What is that saying? That's your way to be able to bless me. Um, I'm in a place right now, as Hashem knows, where I could use a little bit of financial assistance from friends and family members and, and people who are in a position where they've got a little bit extra. And so this is your way to be able to share with me. And so I'm blessed to be able to receive uh, gifts and contributions um, uh, to my ministry. And that just helps me along uh, during this difficult time that we're all in. Okay. Alrighty. Let's turn to Romans 14 unplug feast and fast and food. Oh my. And um, what we're going to do is we're going to read from um, Mark Nanus, his book, the, uh, the mystery of Romans. He's the, um, He's the primary source that I've been working from. He's not the only source, but he's uh, someone who's done a lot of historical research that's helping us to um, uh, rediscover 
um, the background behind Paul's letter here, the book of Romans, particularly chapter 14. So um, as we work our way through this particular chapter, we've, we've, we've taken an exceptionally long amount of time to, to ask the questions about who are the weak in faith and um, how does that um, relate to who the brother is in the, in the passage. And um, let me just read this uh, part from my own um, uh, commentary first. Uh, this is we've read this before, but this is a kind of an overview and gives us the, the perspective that I'm looking to convey. Um, I say in my own commentary, after reading Nano's uh, book for myself, I can honestly say that I do not espouse to every conclusion he arrives at. And um, if you ever read the book for yourself, I'm, I think I'll flash a picture of it on the screen here at this point in time. Uh, Mark Nano's um, The Mystery of Romans, black cover, red writing. If you ever get a chance to read the book, it's surely going to be a paradigm-changing read, meaning it's going to challenge the way you traditional you traditionally view Paul, maybe as someone who um, walked away from Judaism and joined or embraced or created a new religion called Christianity. Um, this book is going to challenge that view. Uh, perhaps you're used to reading about Paul um, only meeting with believers and with uh, Christians and um, Messianic Jews, and uh, he left the synagogue community and um, he was no longer bound to them authoritatively or anything. This book's going to challenge that perspective as well. But there are some things in the book that he says that I'm not quite convinced about. Maybe we'll talk about those a different, a different day. Here's what I have to say, however. Uh, I can say that one of the sticking points about this paradigm-challenging book is his refreshing take on Paul's positive attitude towards the Torah and continued pathos for his fellow countrymen. Even though most remained in a state of unbelief in Yeshua as Messiah of Israel. Thus, uh, in conclusion to this section of my commentary, I will allow this quote from uh, Nanos himself to highlight some of the important aspects of why we, as believing Jews and Gentiles, united under the united unifying banner of our Lord Yeshua, need a perspective such as his driving understanding of Romans. In other words, why am I even going through all of this? Why take so much time and effort to try and convince you that the way that you've been reading Paul is, is not quite accurate. I'm not saying that you need to throw it all out. Um, theologically speaking, most of what we've learned in Christianity is absolutely spot on. So you don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. So let me read a quote from um, um, Ananos himself. Uh, this is from his book, and this kind of gives you maybe just a bit of an overview before I actually jump into the book. Uh, Nanos says, quote, we gain a new perspective on Paul's deep commitment to the law, nuanced by his uncompromising concern to maintain the universal salvation that was at the heart of monotheism. For he regarded his Jewish brothers and sisters as fellow brothers in the one God, though not yet in God's Christ, the promised seed. Now let me just stop and unpack that first sentence. When we talk about the universal salvation, we have to agree that whether Jew or Gentile, in Paul's mind, there's only one way, there's only one God, and there's only one method of salvation, and that is to come to God through his son Yeshua. So Paul's going to express this throughout his writings, right? So when we talk about Jew and Gentile, one of the primary theological sticking points that you've got to um, grasp when you're reading through Paul is that Paul is explaining that the uh, to say to put it the way that one pastor friend of mine said it the ground is level at the foot of the cross there's no pedigrees or prerequisites or or uh, works that a person can do that would um, uh, elevate him above his fellow people 
right? When it comes to human beings, there's, there's um, one problem, we're all sinners, and there's one solution. And his name is Jesus. So that's that's going to be at the heart of Paul's theology. And to that um, issue, Paul is going to have to unpack that as he's dealing with Jews and Gentiles. When it came to Jews who had not yet accepted Yeshua, there was this common notion that my Jewish pedigree, my um, affiliation with Israel, or my relationship to the law through my identity as a circumcised Jew, thus my maintenance of keeping Torah commands is what um, makes me, uh, puts me in a right standing with God. We call this works of the law or under the law sometimes. Um, sometimes it's just called law. And so in Paul, um, he's trying to get them to understand that this kind of this what we might call a nationalistic idea of just um, uh, being acceptable to God because we're born into the family group known as Israel is not actually going to cut it when it comes to um, uh, genuine salvation on the inside. It does speak to covenant membership on the outside, and that's great. And God wants Jewish people to uh, um, brought, be brought into that covenant at, at the external level, but there is a deeper issue at stake, and Paul is always going to uh, keep addressing that. It's relationship with God on a personal level. So you've got relationship with God at a corporate level, at a national level, at a people group level, and that's good. There's nothing wrong with that. Paul doesn't look down on that. He doesn't frown on that in and of itself. There's nothing wrong with being a Jew, being an Israelite, being circumcised, being a law keeper. All of that is a good thing. It's a it's a bonus. It's 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 an advantage. Paul even calls it in Romans earlier in his book here. What advantage is there to being circumcised? Much in every way. If if he if he thought that that was all rubbish, then he would have said he wouldn't have said much in every way. So it's good to be Jewish. It's good to be circumcised. It's good to have the law. It's good to have a relationship with God. It's good to be faithful to Torah, to be loyal to, loyal to Torah, to the level that you are raised in that environment. That's all good. But do you have a genuine personal relationship with God, one-on-one relationship with his son, that's going to be a, a different matter. So that's what we're talking about, being brought into this um, scope of, of a socio-religious group where Paul's uh, challenging both sides, Jews and Gentiles. Who is Messiah in your life? Who is Jesus? How do you reckon with this This. Uh, promised one who was spoken of in the prophets, right, in the writings, in the Tanakh, that's now before our very eyes. The, the, the future is broken into the into the present, right? Um, the eschaton, which we thought was going to be the end of the ages, has now arrived. The end of the ages has arrived. The, the promises are unfolding right before our very eyes. So let's keep reading um, Nanos' quote here, and you'll see what I'm talking about. Nanos says, Rather than focusing on the assumption that weak is a pejorative or patronizing reference to Christian Jews who practice the law with this arrogant assumption that this is a failure to have complete faith apart from Torah, right? Let me pause. It is no secret that the traditional perspective on Romans 14 from a traditional historical Christian popular perspective is that someone who's weak in faith is anyone, whether Jew or Gentile, but primarily Jews, who lay hold of faith in Jesus, they claim to be a Christian, but at the same time, they have this preference or proclivity for keeping Torah. That's a sign of weakness in the eyes of traditional Christian exegesis on this passage, which means people such as myself, I'm a Messianic Jew, which means I'm a Jew who believes in Jesus, but also follows after the law of Moses to the best of my understanding. 
This means that your traditional Christian, your, your average churchgoer, who knows that I'm a Christian, but also knows that I keep Torah, is probably in the back of their mind going to be wrestling with this idea that Ariel is a weak Christian. He's weak. You know, he, he's in love with God, and he, he's loyal to Torah, and he's in love with Messiah, but at the end of the day, it amounts to weakness, just like Paul said, it amounts to weakness because really a position of strength is a position of free from the law. This is the, the, the standard Christian assumption that uh, um, these particular um, verses are cast in, that weak in faith is a, a Christian who keeps Torah and strong in faith is a Christian who's not necessarily breaks Torah. Don't get me wrong. That's not the, 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 the opposite of a weakness. Rather, the strong Christian is a person who realizes that he's free from the law. He doesn't have to be bound to the ceremonial aspects or the or the civil. He can he can keep them if he wants to, right? He can he can keep Sabbath if he wants, kosher if he wants, you know, wear him as wear him wear tzitzit and put him on his door. He can do those things, walk in the festivals, but he's not bound to them. He's not covenantally obligated to do them. He's free from them. He's free from the law. And therefore he doesn't have to do them if he wants. He's free to eat a ham sandwich if he wants to. So that's the traditional perspective. Mark Nanos says, and who's a Jewish historian, although he's not a Christian, but he's a he's an historian, he's a Jewish historian. He says, according to the research that he can uh, uh, that he's um, um, uh, poured over and that he's uh, uncovered. Um, no, that's probably not the best way to understand that. So let me read that sentence again. Um, Rather than focusing on the assumption that weak is a pejorative or patronizing reference to Christian Jews who practice the law with his arrogant assumption that this is a failure to have complete faith apart from Torah, Nato says, we spring Luther's trap, right? Martin Luther's who we're talking about, and instead focus on Paul's continuing respect for keeping the law as an act of faith that leads to and continues to manifest the very love God demonstrated in Christ. So in, in the end, what Nanos f- discovers, and what I have also agree with, and many Messianic d- teachers come to this conclusion, is that Paul was not against Torah. Paul did not teach what we might refer to today as a law-free gospel. Paul, in fact, championed continued Torah observance, especially for Jews, but also for Gentiles. He was, Paul, was simply concerned that Jew and Gentile alike would sometimes be tripped up by the legalism known as um, uh, ethnocentric Jewish exclusivism or nationalism, or the faulty assumption that um, uh, Jewish identity or Israelite identity is paramount and primary in God's eyes and and trumps uh, any type of genuine faith in God. So that's really... If you can read through Paul's writings and, and keep that careful distinction, you're better on your way to a better understanding Paul. Uh, Nanos continues, and we see Paul wrestling with the tensions created by maintaining that the law continued to be operative for Jews, but was not necessary for Gentiles to become co-participants in Israel's blessings, for the blessings were actually for the whole world equally. And yet the need for Gentiles to live as slaves of righteousness, which meant in love they fulfilled the law as they maintained the intentions of the apostolic discre- the decree, the halakha government the behavior of righteous Gentiles, loyal to the one Lord. Let me just back up and explain some of that. What he means is that Paul realized that uh, um, there were parts of Torah that even though Israel is obligated to keep Torah based on her covenant relationship with God, and even though Gentiles are going to be brought into this relationship with God and into a close proximity uh, with Israel to the point that they can be uh, 
termed grafted in, right, brought into this relationship. Nevertheless, when it comes to Torah, that's going to have to take somewhat of a back seat uh, in regards to um, uh, with regards to faith in Messiah. So if we were to compare, let me say it this way, if we were to make a comparison or a, um, a contest between what is more important, faith in Messiah or loyalty to Torah, well then Paul would side with faith in Messiah because that's what's going to bring you into a genuine and lasting relationship with God. Torah observance is going to be your um, um, sanctification path. It's going to be the tool that the Holy Spirit uses to, to help clean up your life bring you into a place where your your um your outside lines up with your inside if i can use that phrase but if we were to compare those two and pit them one against the other i'm not saying we should don't get me wrong and, I, and i'm saying that's actually a wrong-headed notion i think that faith in messiah and loyalty to torah or obedience faith plus obedience are actually two sides of one coin in god's hand but I think that's what uh, Nanos is trying to convey here. Let's keep reading. Together, these observations allow us to see Paul as a faithful Jew, right? We're reading through this so that, um, and I'm making these particular studies for you so that we can understand afresh that Paul had nothing bad to say about Torah per se. As long as you're using this tool by the Holy Spirit and using it as a sanctification guide to um, lead you into paths of righteousness and to be recipients of the blessings so that you can be um, in a place where your, your vessel is usable, uh, the Torah becomes this tool to help you turn from sin and to turn into the truths of God. It's never to be used to secure your place with God or any type of favor or meritorious brownie points, if you want to call them. That's not the way the Torah works, although it is a blessing tool. It is designed to be um, um, a mechanism that attracts the blessing of God, right? Just remember this very simple bumper sticker slogan, God doesn't bless wickedness, which means the converse is true. God rewards righteousness. God rewards uh, um, uh, obedience, right? God desires obedience. So uh, that's the mindset we have to go with. So um, these observations that we're going through, this is study, allow us to see Paul as a faithful Jew, faithful to God, and continued loyalty to Torah. Paul did not turn his back on Torah. Paul did not champion a law-free gospel for Jew or Gentile. In fact, as a champion of Israel's historical faith in his bold reminder to those in Rome whom he understood to be righteous Gentiles, Paul uh, explained that they, through their new faith in Jesus Christ, in Christ Jesus, were actually fellow heirs. They were um, um, co-citizens in the commonwealth of Israel. They were brought into this proximity to blessing with with the people of God, the existing people of God. So with that, let's uh, look real quick. We're going to be uh, discussing uh, Romans 14, and we're looking through verses 10 through 13. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Uh, why do you despise your brother? As you can see the verse on my uh, screen right now, does brother here mean brother Christian? Well, in many cases, the Greek word Adelphon or Adelphos or something like that um, does mean Christian, and it does mean fellow brother of someone who has um, professed faith in Messiah. But I submit to you that there are some cases where brother does not have to mean brother Christian. So if we allow that, Paul can sometimes use the word brother, same Greek word, to refer to um, a, a community of people who were 
faithful to God and expressed a, a covenant relationship to God, uh, known as Israel, I mean, you know, this family that God had called out, then when it comes to Gentiles, Paul is absolutely going to want the Gentile believers in Messiah to to appreciate their connection to this greater community of faith, even if that greater community of faith still lacks when it comes to professing faith in Messiah. Because, again, as we learned from last week and the week prior, there's really only one faith community when it comes to monotheistic perspectives in Paul's day. There was no Christianity as we know it yet. And there certainly wasn't Paul's um, admonishment to head on over to any pagan groups, right? Paul doesn't want his his community members who are Gentiles uh, going back to their old pagan ways, which means he wants them to be in that rock, between that rock and that hard place. Don't turn back to paganism. Oh, and by the way, don't convert to Judaism for the wrong notion either. Don't change your ethnicity as if that's possible. Don't change your, your um, religious affiliation from Gentile to Jew. It's unnecessary, and indeed, it confuses the plan of God because what God told Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 12 is that I will bless those who bless you, and through you all the nations will be blessed. We have got to understand that it's the bringing in of the nations that is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promises, that is the fulfillment of rebuilding the fallen uh, uh, booth of David, um, you know, the, the fulfillment of Amos prophecy, the fulfillment of, of, of what we read about in Jeremiah and Isaiah, and these prophecies where God is going to bring the nations nations into a relationship with him through his son Messiah, but bring them into a proximity with the existing uh, people group known as Israel. So much so that when Paul gets to Romans 11, he can envision uh, uh, the wild olive branches being um, transported and brought into the cultivated olive tree, which I understand to be the family clan of Israel. So let's read an excerpt from uh, Mark um, Nanos uh, from his book, The Letter Writer. Um, uh, I'm sorry, <laughs> that's a different wrong author. Uh, Tim Haig is going to bring this. Uh, we might make this a part four. I may make a uh, part four. I might uh, continue this on next week if I don't finish tonight because I don't want to rush. Um, we will read from Mark Nanos the, the, the letter of uh, the mystery of Romans eventually, but let me finish Tim Haig. I don't remember if we finished this um, or not. Um, I don't remember finishing it. So, uh, uh, Bear with me if we read something that um, we've read before in the past. Uh, so I'll just start right here. This is uh, 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 Tim Haig, not Mark Nanos just yet. Tim Haig reminds us in his book, The Letter Writer, Paul's faith community then was the same community he was part of before he came to believe that Yeshua was the Messiah. Right? He was still a member of the Jewish community. He didn't make a break from uh, Judaism in that regard. He simply, um, he simply took on a, an aspect of Judaism that was different from his former manner of life in Judaism. He was still a Pharisee, but now he became a believing Pharisee, if you want to call it that. Viewed with suspicion both by those he persecuted as well as by those who gave him permission to keep to persecute, he nonetheless lived and worked in the community of the synagogue, no doubt finding great joy in the reading and study of the Tanakh and in the worship of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He still considered the synagogue community part of his community, and we see um, the proof of that is what we looked at last week, how that he allowed the synagogue authorities to punish him. 
And why would he do that? We came to a conclusion that he would allow himself to receive the punishment from the synagogue for a number of reasons, but some of those must include because he himself considered himself a part of that community, so much so that he was um, in a position where he would receive the punishment, and at the same time it would send a message to them that, hey, I want you guys to consider me. I consider you. So I want you to consider me, right? In other words, the relationship goes both ways. Um, I yield to your punishment uh, because I'm under your authority in that regard. Uh, again, that's a powerful signal that it would send to anyone around him, both the synagogue community as well as those who might consider that Paul left the synagogue community. So Tim Haig continues, uh, he, speaking of Paul, he found in the synagogue those who were open to receiving the gospel of Yeshua and who expressed their faith in him. And we see this as we look at Paul visiting the synagogue over and over and over and over again when we read to the book of Acts. In the diverse Judaisms of his day, he considered himself, along with those who had confessed Yeshua to be the promised Messiah, part of the Jewish community, a part he believed one day would encompass the whole. So, that's the perspective we're working from. So, let's read a little bit of Mark Nanos tonight. We won't finish it, but we'll take a bite out of it. Paul, uh, in chapter, uh, I think it's chapter 3, it might be chapter 2 uh, of Mark Nanos' book. No, it is chapter 3. He, we start uh, with this paragraph entitled, The Weak Were Definitely Jews, But Were They Christians? We're tying in this idea of the weak in faith with the brothers. If the brothers are only Christians, then it doesn't really matter if um, uh, uh, those in purview of Paul's listening letter um, have any interaction with the unbelieving synagogue at all. Uh, because if everyone's just a believer, then um, why concern yourself with unbelieving Jews, right? Why worry about their perspective on Torah or anything like that? But if the weak in your midst are still those, those in the synagogue that could still have relationship with the Christians, and it's probably going the other way. It's probably that the Christians were still attending the synagogues at some level, and we had some, you know, uh, what we might call cross-pollination between Christians attending synagogue and perhaps some unbelieving Jews attending Christian assemblies, Christian church groups, home groups, and things like that. Either way, we still had access going back and forth between people groups. I don't know exactly how much access was going on. I can't speak on that. Um, Mark Nanos doesn't uh, clarify all of that. Um, he's simply trying to say that the, the, the hard and fast break from the church and synagogue that that we're familiar with today had not taken place in the, in Paul's day just yet. So um, it's entirely thinkable that um, Paul's letter perhaps had even had some familiarity among uh, synagogue groups. I don't know that it was being read in synagogues. I'm not going to go so far as to say that. But the takeaway is this. Let me say this up front real quick. Why do I even care and why should you care? <laughs> because you're thinking, well, today I can't just go to the synagogue. I can't attend it as a Christian. They're suspicious the minute they hear that I believe in Jesus, right? They're probably going to usher me to the door. Particularly if you're a Messianic Jew, such as myself, and you show up at a traditional synagogue today and they find out that you're a believer in Jesus, you're a threat to them, and they will definitely usher you out the door. Most synagogues will, particularly the Orthodox ones. Maybe some conservative or reform ones might be a little bit more welcome to receiving you because maybe they're interested in what you have to say. But um, every Orthodox synagogue I've ever visited, as soon as they found out, find out I'm a, I'm, I'm a believing Jew, they, they don't want much to do with me because I'm a threat to their way of life. Uh, Christianity is, is a um, competitive religion in their perspective. So why am I even giving this aspect to you? Why do I even share this with you? Maybe I'll just talk about this real quick, and then I'll, I won't read Nanos tonight. We'll save that for next week. Let me just tell you my own personal um perspective on why even bringing some of these uh, to your attention. Apart from the fact that it... um 
reading Paul as a law-free, someone who's uh, left his Judaism and embraced Christianity, apart from the fact that it paints an inaccurate view of Paul, um, in other words, it's not uh, true to the man that we really should be studying and the way he um, thought about Torah. Apart from that, it uh, to teach that Paul taught against Torah and that he's no longer interested in Judaism and that um, uh, Jews had no um, bear, unbelieving Jews had no importance to him uh, goes contrary to the mind and the heart of God, especially as you would encounter it as you read through the Tanakh. God cut a covenant with the offspring of Abraham. And we read about this offspring, their ups and their downs, all throughout the Old Testament, to the point that the prophets begin to uh, foretell that there's going to come a day when God would have this covenant relationship with Israel. He would bring them to their knees and bring them to a, um, a place where they would accept his Messiah. That being the case, uh, God's going to fill them with his spirit and, and empower them to walk into his Torah. So we can see right away that if we're holding this perspective that Paul did away with the law, then we're actually fighting against the very prophecies that God gave to Israel long ago, particularly once in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, where God promises that he would place a new heart within them, fill them with his spirit, cause them to walk into his ways, etc., etc. So if we approach the new covenant with this idea that this is something new that's different than than the covenant that God made with Moshe knew to the to the degree that there's a new set of standards is what I'm trying to refer to. Well, then um, we make nonsense of the prophecies that God says he's going to fill fill Israel with the Spirit and cause them to walk in the law of Moses, right? Walk in his ways. That's one reason why we need to have discussions like we're having. Some of the other reasons include, however, the idea that from Paul's perspective, and this is extremely important. We're going to see this as Nanos develops this. From Paul's perspective, there's only one people group that God is in covenant with, and it's Israel. And the other surrounding nations are brought into this relationship with God using the mechanism of Israel's relationship with God as well. So that from God's perspective, Israel, even though she's in unbelief, she is a tool in the hands of God used to reach out to the unbelieving nations and bring them into a right relationship with God through his son, Messiah Yeshua, to the, um, uh, for the purpose of or to the goal of turning right back around and reaching out to the unbelieving in Israel to bring them into this um close relationship with God through the Son Messiah. So the salvation uh, salvation history as we read through the scriptures and how it plays out is that God reached out to one man, Abraham, grew him into a family group, right, the clan of Israel, and from the people of Israel was birthed the Messiah, and from the Messiah, from his death, we are then brought into a personal relationship with God, and then that relationship led into the bringing in of the Gentiles, right? As we're moving through the book of Acts and we see the Gentiles brought, bring, um, um, reached out to because Yeshua told us, go into all the world and preach the gospel. So the salvation plan of God is unfolding before our very eyes. This is going from Abraham to, to Israel, um, to Yeshua, to the apostles, and then reaching out, outreaching to the nations. But watch this, that's not where it ends. From Paul's perspective, he understands that salvation entails the bringing in of the Gentiles to the fullness of the Gentiles till we get to the point where God's plan turns right back around to the Jews, to Israel again, to bring them in 
to the eternal salva- salvific plans of God, uh, accepting his Messiah, uh, mourning, for, uh, uh, weeping for uh, him whom they pierced, etc., etc. So that's why we're having these types of discussions. We cannot simply, as Christians, write off the Jews. We can't simply just write them out of our, our, our Bibles and say, oh, well, God's done with them. That whole kind of replacement theology, dispensational perspective where God's not um, interested in the Jewish people anymore, at least right now, not right now or anything like that. No, that, there, there are weaknesses to those views, and that's what we're trying to expose and br- come to a better understanding of the way Paul th- uh, processed uh, his Old Testament in light of the fact that Jesus, that Yeshua is bringing this gospel to the Gentiles, what do we do with Israel? You know, this this um, anomaly, as we, we would think of it from Paul's perspective, that that uh, Jews in mass have not yet received this Messiah. It's, it's anomalous, right? I mean, it makes it all, it makes sense that they should accept Messiah because everything about Messiah is, is is culturally Jewish and acceptable from a Jewish perspective. They should not have rejected him, and yet they did. And so it's Paul's um, uh, continued passion to reach out to unbelieving Jews. That's why he keeps going to the synagogue to try and reach out to them. And thus, the weakness that we're that we're um, uh, uh, investigating here in Paul's letter is it's a. It's a disservice to Jewish people, particularly Torah-observant ones, those who express faith in God and loyalty to Torah. It's a disservice to them to automatically assume that their weakness is tied to their Torah-keeping. It's better if we um, think of it if their weakness in, in, in a different light, and that's why we're are considering that perhaps maybe weakness is tied to their belief in Messiah rather than to their... Um, uh, 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 preference for keeping Torah. All right, so that'll do it for uh, the um, Romans 14 study. Let's turn now to um, exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity and take a little bit of time and work our way down through um, some of the uh, material here. You can find my exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity study on my website at tatesatorah.com, right from the home page, uh, that cluster of links that you see there. It's right there where it says discussions on the issues of Trinity, so I invite you to, to um, uh, click on the study there. We're working our way down through this chart, as I mentioned, that uh, Karm put together. Let me scroll to the part that we need. Here we go. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, as you can see on my screen. And tonight, uh, I'm sorry, last week we looked at how uh, Father, Son, Holy Spirit in, uh, resurrected Yeshua. Tonight we're going to look at how the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit indwell. They indwell. And so let's just turn right to it. We've got uh, three passages this time. First passage is 2 Corinthians 6.16. 6, we're going to read how um, Paul talks about how that it is God who is dwelling within us or in the midst of us or among us. We're going to play with those words in the midst of, among, within, as we look at that passage. Then we're going to turn to Colossians 1.27, how Paul describes how that it is Messiah within us, the hope of glory, right? Christ in you, the hope of glory. And we're going to see how it's important that Paul understood that God in us is Christ in us. And then lastly, we'll turn to the book of John and see how um, Yeshua explained to his uh, disciples how that is the Holy Spirit is going to dwell within us. And so it's these triadic passages taken together as a whole that give us the bigger picture that we're dealing with one being known as God, but yet three persons as expressed in Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And um, so let's just look at this. 2 Corinthians, what I say, uh, uh, 6.16. Let's turn to that verse first. 6.16. Sorry about that. I'm looking at the wrong verse. Okay. Um, Paul says, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? 
For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now, um, we're familiar with the Old Testament picture of God's tabernacle, which later became the temple, in which the presence of God moved in, as it were, to the building. But is that really what God wanted us to understand when he says, um, build a tabernacle or and later a temple, and I will dwell in it or dwell among you as the temple exists among you? Let's look at this for a moment. Paul tells us that we are the temple of living God, which means at the very outset, Paul understands that in some um, mysterious way, God takes up residency within us as the very temple. Just like the picture in the Old Testament where the temple was the the place that God's presence, his shekhinah, his glory, his manifest presence, uh, took up residency then in like fashion, in a midrashic way, uh, in a homiletic way, but in a very real way, not just in mysterious, not just ethereal, not just in theory, but in reality, we are the very temple of the living God, which means he lives inside of us. And notice the quote, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God. God doesn't just dwell among us as believers. He actually dwells within us. So let's play with this idea of dwelling among us versus dwelling within us. What is this language from the Tanakh, from the Old Testament? Um, again, we could take notice that in the um, various versions, as I've got pulled up on my screen, some of the um, passages, I'm sorry, let me jump back over to the Greek for a split second. The, the last phrase where... Uh, um, it says, "Make my, I will make my dwelling among them." This Greek word, "among them." Um, let's see, where do I want to find it? Here we go. Um, actually, the Greek says, "in them," right? In oikeso in altois. This phrase right here, uh, "I will dwell in altois them." Um, third person pronoun here. Uh, What's most important for me, what jumps off the page for me, is this uh, Greek preposition "n," which translates into English as I-N-N. So notice that the ESV says, I will make my dwelling among them. But emphatically, we could say in the Greek, I will make my dwelling in them. So this is what I want to challenge us with just a little bit tonight. Let's look at this idea. Dwelling among them compared with dwelling in them. And what's at stake here is that if you ask your average Jew, does God dwell among us? Every is going to say, yeah. Most Jews, most religious Jews, yeah, of course God dwells among us. But if you ask him, does God dwell in you? That's where you're going to get a little, get a little bit of a challenge. Christians agree that God dwells in us, right? Via his Holy Spirit, via the Son of God himself. But your average Jew is challenged with this notion of God dwelling in us. Can that happen? How does that work? Okay, so this is why it's important for us to look at uh, sometimes little words like in versus among. Uh, If you look at your average uh, English versions for this particular verse, you're going to find a variety. NIV says, um, we are the temple of the living God. God says, I will live with them. New Living Translation says, I will live in them. So notice right away, even from a Christian perspective, we realize that this Greek word en, E-N, but we translate it into English as I-N. This Greek word can, it has kind of a range of meanings. Does it mean in us or does it mean among us? As we've already looked at, ESV says among them. Berean Study Bible says with them. The Berean Literal Bible says uh, God says I will dwell in them. 
KJV says, uh, I will dwell in them. Uh, new KJV, same thing, in them. NASB says, I will dwell among them. So you guys get the idea. Is it really in or is it among? Well, it's yes. The answer is yes. It's both in and among, depending on which translation you read and depending on what you're trying to emphasize. So I'll just kind of give you the bottom line up front. But notice again, from a, from a, a Jewish perspective, when we look at translations that favor um, one versus the other. Let me turn to Exodus chapter 25 and drop down to verse uh, uh, 8. This is a passage that's probably reminiscent of what Paul is quoting. It may not be the exact passage that he quotes um, in uh, 2 Corinthians. In fact, let me pull up here. Um, uh Exodus 25.8, uh, cross-reference-wise from 2 Corinthians 6.16, and they are to make a sanctuary for me so that I may dwell among them. So notice that Moshe is already speaking God's words, um, I will dwell among them. In the you know Make a sanctuary for me, God tells Israelites. Also, in Exodus 29.5, then I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. Uh, look at Leviticus 26.12, I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. So, um, and again, also um, in Ezekiel 37, my dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God and they will be my people. So what we're, what we're simply highlighting is that from an Old Testament perspective, it's not uh, unusual for God to use language of dwelling among his people because we think about the temple, the tabernacle, things like that. Well, of course, God's going to dwell among us. But many times as Christians, we're, we're fond of thinking, well, in the Old Testament, God dwelt among his people, but in the New Testament, he dwells in his people. And that's the big difference I've heard many preachers say. But that's the challenge. Not necessarily is that accurate. I think that God uh, did dwell in his people in the Old Testament as well, but it, the truth is that it's only through his son Messiah by the power of his spirit. That's true. But let's look at this. Uh, let me just pull a single out just that one passage, because this is one of the more famous ones that Judaism wrestled with. God says, they are to make a sanctuary for me so that I may dwell among them. Let me turn to the Hebrew and the Greek uh, for you a second. Um, the English says, let them, make a let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. In the Hebrew it says, And the, the words I want to bring out to you is this word, The root word is these three letters, shachan dwell. And this is the this is a, a Hebrew word that connotes that uh, conjures up that that uh, um, emphasizes the idea of neighborly dwelling. Um, nearness, proximity to one another. Um, because there's there's another word that could have been used uh, if you wanted to say that I will uh, uh, take up residency with you or something like that. Um, but interestingly, the translators of the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Bible that was in existence a couple of centuries prior to Messiah hitting the scene, the Bible that Paul would have been familiar with, um, it uses a Greek phrase here, of thesomai in human. Um, I will, uh, I shall appear among you. This uh, Greek word here, of thesomai, uh, and there's our familiar word in, right? Uh, and then human, you, the the uh, the um, um, pronoun. Um, you shall make a sanctuary for me, and I shall I shall appear among you. This is what this Greek phrase here refers to, as if. I might not really be there, but it's going to look like I'm there. You'll see me. 
This could be in your mind. It could be in the spirit. It could just be with your eyes only. Like you see the glory of God. Are you really looking at God? Are you looking at the glory of God? Looking at the light of God, but maybe not God himself because you can't see God. This is what this phrase in the Greek could be referring to. That's why the translators translate it as appear. It refers to something that kind of shows up in front of you. But notice there, what's missing is any reference to dwelling in you or something to that effect taking up residency within you. simply talks about God kind of showing up so that we can see him. So that's one thing we want to consider. But the next thing I want to show you is four different resources in the Hebrew, not Hebrew, I'm sorry, from Jewish perspective, where um, it's referenced that uh, the, the modern rabbis and ancient rabbis uh, tried to understand how is it that God said he's going to dwell among us. Is he going to dwell within us by dwelling among us? Or is he going to dwell among us only and we won't have him dwelling within us, what gives? Look at this passage uh, through the lens of four different Jewish authors, um, some of them modern, some of them ancient. This first website, the IsraelBible.com, is more of a modern perspective, but it's quoting uh, ancient rabbis. First, we have the verse right here, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. We have a transliteration of the Hebrew, Va'asuli mikdash v'shechanti batucham. Then we have the literal Hebrew right there. And then look at this explanation. Let me just uh, read that for you. That I may dwell among them. Significantly, the verse does not say that I may dwell within it. This is what the rabbis tried to wrestle with. Is God saying that he's going to dwell within us? Or is God saying, build a sanctuary so I can move into the building? That's the big question. That I, The verse doesn't say, um, build me a sanctuary that I may dwell within it. And the rabbis talk about how the, in the Hebrew, instead of saying, v'shechanti b'tocham, in the Hebrew, let me bring it up for you again, this last uh, letter, but toham, if we take that letter out, we erase it and just read it as batoch, right? Vasuli mikdash, vasuli mikdash, vashachanti batoch, if we stop right there, then we could retranslate the verse as, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in it or among it or within it. So the focus shifts to the building instead of the people. But thankfully, Moshe didn't stop with batoch. He actually included this final name, this final letter, batocham, which gives us the reading of them, among them, not in it. So that's kind of what's going on in this translation here, this commentary. The verse doesn't say that I may dwell within it. The Mishkan is not intended to physically contain Hashem within its walls. God didn't say, build me a building so I can move into the building. Rather, the Sephorno, this is an ancient uh, rabbinic uh, um, resource, the Sephorno explains it is a place which enables Hashem to dwell among them, meaning in the midst of the children of Israel. Unlike pagan places of worship, the Mishkan, which is the tabernacle, is not meant to provide a home on earth for a god. That's a pagan idea. Build a temple and the god lives in the building. That's a pagan notion according to uh, the Sephorno. Rather, the Mishkan and ultimately the Beit Hamikdash, which is the temple in Yerushalayim, are designed to facilitate the relationship between Hashem and his children where every person can go to elevate himself or herself spiritually. So that's first um, Jewish resource that says, yes, God is supposed to dwell among them. Let's look at another resource that uh, similar to that. We have a, 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 a woman rabbi here from, uh, this is a more of a, what we kind of call reform perspective, um, Rabbi Yael. And um, she talks about, uh, let me find the quote here. I believe it's right. I'm sorry, it's not right there. It's right here. All right, so let's read this quote. 
She says, quote, Creating a Mishkan, however, seems antithetical to God's all-encompassing existence. In this week's parsha, the Torah states, Va'asu li mikdash v'shakanti patokham, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Exodus 25, 8. How could God be boxed into an edifice? It seems unlikely that the God of Abraham, the God of Rivka, or even the God of Moshe would make such a materialistic demand of constructing a building where God would dwell. The 15th century Spanish scholar Abravanel suggests that the purpose of the Mishkan was to combat the idea that God's throne was in heaven far away from the needs of humanity. God understood that contemporary time needed a new avenue for spiritual fulfillment and divine connectivity. She goes on to say, right here, the Tzayda Laderach, a 17th century Polish commentator, explained that it was not that God wanted to literally enter the sanctuary, right? Remember this idea of God dwelling in it, but rather that God wanted to enter the hearts of B'nai Yisrael. The text, this, clex, uh, this claim is supported by the text choice to state, dwell among them rather than dwell in it. Remember this, if we change the Hebrew from but from Betocham to Betoch. Just take out one little Hebrew letter. The sanctuary is not where God lives. In contrast to other ancient faiths, the Mishkan is a concrete reminder that God is present in our midst and that God may be found wherever we are open to the divine. So I just wanted to bring out some of these modern rabbinic perspectives, uh, quoting ancient rabbinic perspectives, playing with this idea, where does God live? Where does God indwell? Is it among a place or is it among the people? Is it both? Again, from a Christian perspective, we already know that God dwells in us, but we have to bounce that concept off of the idea in the, in the Tanakh that God did dwell among his people, in the, but was it in the building? Or was it his presence among the people, and that's how God dwelt among us? That's what we're wrestling with, and that's what we're looking at. One more, uh, two more resources here. Uh, Wikipedia's uh, uh, um, article on Parashat Truma, which is Exodus chapter 25, where we're looking at the passage, looking at this verse. If we drop down to um, a section, let me find it. It's uh, Sarna's quote. Give me a moment here. My bookmarks shifted on me when I opened up all these tabs, and so I'm not quite happy about that. Uh, let me just read this quote. Another uh, uh, ancient uh, Jewish uh, commentary source. Sarna noted that the Exodus 25, 8 speaks of God dwelling not in it, that is, in the tabernacle, but among them, that is, among the Israelites. Again, if you ask your average Christian about the Old Testament, where did God dwell, many of them will say, well, he dwelt in the tabernacle. God's presence was there. And there is a sense that that is true because we talk about the, lo the, the um, God's presence being um, experienced between the wings of the cherubim, right? But we're asking the question, is it unthinkable that from the Old Testament perspective that God was actually already wishing to convey this idea of dwelling within us? Sarna continues. Sarna observed that the verb to dwell is not common Hebrew Y-S-H-V, which where we get the word yeshiva, yashav, which means to sit um, or to occupy, uh, but the rare S-H-K-N, from where we get the word mishkan or shekhinah, um, which conveys the idea of temporary lodging in a tent as in the nomadic lifestyle. And I talked about that earlier as well. Sarna concluded that the tabernacle was not God's abode, as were similar pagan structures. Notice that ancient Judaism is taking great pains to remind us that if God simply told Moshe, Moshe, tell the people to build a building so that I can move into the building, that would be no different than the ancient pagans, the, the perspective that they had of their deities, where the, the deity, the God, lived in the building. 
But when we left the building, we were leaving the presence of our deity. That is to say, there's this distance between us and the deity. He's not personally indwelling within us. Rather, he's confined to the um, the, the, the uh, four walls of the temple that we built for him. And ancient Judaism is repudiating that notion. That's what's going on in, in front of us. And that's why it's important for us to, to have this discussion. Rather... Sarna argued that the tabernacle made perceptible, remember this phrase, when we say perceptible, remember this um, Greek phrase here, um, um, os, uh, uh, of thesomai, but we talked about perceiving or seeing, that's what Sarna is referring to, made perceptible and tangible the conception of God's eminence, that is, of the indwelling of the divine presence in the Israelite camp. So um, God did dwell among us, but it was a bit more than that. So now let's jump to two resources that outright state that God dwelled in us. Just in case we want to say, as Christians, God dwelling in us is a Christian notion. No one in Judaism would ever think that God would dwell in us. I beg to differ with you. There are Jewish sources who teach that God dwelled dwelt in us, not just among us. And so look at these two sources. These aren't the only two sources. They're all over the place. I'm just pulling these for you to be able to see them uh, uh, with me um, tonight. Uh, let's pull another resource. This is um, the Jerusalem Post, uh, jpost.com. Uh, let me find it here. Uh, notice the way they translate the verse. This parsha deals extensively with the people's offerings towards the building of the Mishkan, the mobile temple known in English as the Tabernacle. Midrash Hagadol takes the 15 materials donated to the Mishkan's construction and likens them to components of the human being. The gold corresponds to the soul, the silver to the body, flax to the intestines, and on and on. This is just Midrash, okay? But listen up. This evocative Midrash clearly equates the house of God with the human being. Notice right away the perspective that they're approaching this passage with. The idea that what God is teaching us in the Old Testament is that the building is the person. Now, isn't that funny? This is an unbelieving rabbi, and when we say unbelieving, we mean not claiming to believe in Jesus, who's equating the building of God with a person's body. Does that sound familiar? For we are the temple of the living God, like Paul talked about? Yeah, it doesn't sound like it's so, so much a Christian idea as it is actually already a Jewish idea. Let's keep reading. Indeed, one of the most commented upon lines in the Parsha is, quote, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell within them within them let me read that again let me make let them make them a com, uh, sanctuary that I may dwell within them now stop for a second stop for a second didn't the um, don't most passages say dwell among them right we look at uh, Exodus 25 8 so that I may dwell among them even the Christian passage versions say dwell among them but here we have a Jewish source saying no I think we could translate it as bell dwell within them let's keep reading Exodus 25 8 grammatically speaking one would expect the text to say build me a sanctuary that I may dwell within it again playing with this idea that um, dwell within it is the logical way of understanding God saying, build me a tabernacle. But let there be no mistake. The simple read of the text is clear. Listen to this translation. This is Jewish translation, not Christian. I keep having to emphasize that. God will dwell within each of us. God will dwell within each of us? Yeah, this is a, the Jerusalem Post saying this. Build it and he will come right into our very selves. 
Yeah, doesn't that sound like what Paul just said in 2 Corinthians uh, 6.16? For we are the temple of the living God. The Parsha's barrage of details about an external building project will all point to quintessentially internal domain. So um, we'll stop uh, with the Jerusalem Post. Let's pick up one more. This is the Art Shiva 7, uh, Israel, IsraelNationalNews.com, right? Really a political website, but they have teachings about the, uh, the Torah portions as well. Let me drop down to a part of their commentary uh, where they talk about the Mishkan. Give me a moment here. Here we go. Uh, their website says, quote, the Torah portion of Truma, again, that's the Torah portion where you find Exodus chapter 25. The Torah portion of Truma offers the remedy. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell within them. Exodus 25, 8. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell within them. The point I'm trying to highlight is that he's talking about dwelling within them. At least this translation does. They go on to say, if they will build a sanctuary for God and his purpose, then God will dwell amongst them and within them. Could it be truly that simple? The simple building of a sanctuary is the key to have God's presence and impact living amongst them and within them. So what's my point of bringing up these four resources that I did um, talking about dwelling among them, dwelling among them, dwelling within them? dwelling within them. What's the point of bringing these Jewish sources? Is to show you that the discussion about God dwelling within a person as opposed to merely dwelling within a building only is not entirely a Christian concept. It's something that the Judaism's down through history, have been struggling with and wrestling with and discussing how can it be that God can dwell within us. Of course, we know that the fullness of this truth comes to be when we accept Messiah and God truly does dwell within us. And to that, now we can turn to our second passage uh, out of these three, right? The second one, which is Colossians 1.27, where Paul says, let me drop down to it, most emphatically, to them speaking of the uh, Gentiles who are being brought into this relationship with uh, God through Messiah, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles, um, I'm sorry, he's talking about the the, the saints, the, 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 the Jewish people who are now uh, believers in God, but in reference to the Gentiles. So he says, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of his glory of this mystery. You ready for it? which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you. Notice how different this would sound if it simply said Christ among you. Christ among you. But the Greek doesn't allow for that. Uh, the Greek down here says, Christos in humen elpis teis doxes. And the word I would just want to highlight for you is that simple Greek pair, uh, pro, um, um, preposition, N E N, same one that Paul used over here. There, N, right? I will make I will make my dwelling in them, not merely among them, but in them. Paul uses that same Greek phrase, Christos in human, Christ in you. So, and the you there is a third person, so it's a group of people. But individually speaking, Paul is now challenging and, and letting us know that, yes, God can dwell in you, but it's in the person of Christ. But notice, from a Trinitarian discussion, it's Christ in us, not just God who's in us, right? We are the temple of the living God. But if Christ is dwelling in us, aren't we, in fact, the temple of Christ as well? 
Paul's going to say, absolutely. And so that's the mystery of Trinity, is that Christ is in us, but it's God in us. And then um, I had the Exodus passage pulled up for us, uh, which is out of order. I suppose it should have been way over here. Sorry about that. Uh, the Exodus 25, 8, uh, let them make the a sanctuary that I may dwell among them, right? Betocham. But now let's turn to the final passage where uh, we talk about the Spirit, and we'll close our study down with this. John 14, 17, every believer knows that it's the Spirit dwelling within us, not just among us, but personally within us. Let's see how John describes this for us. John 14, 17, let me drop down. Let me actually start in verse uh, 16. Yeshua says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. This is a triadic passage because we've got Father and Son and Holy Spirit. I being the Son, uh, Father being the Father, and Helper being the Holy Spirit. It's a triadic passage. And then it's with that in verse 17 that Yeshua says, Even the Spirit of truth, he's this uh, uh, parakleton, or parakletos, or um, a paraclete, is what most pastors say. He is this helper. That's what the Greek word paraclete, root word is. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. Listen to this last phrase. Yeshua says, You know him. Why? For he dwells with you and will be in you. We come full circle with this idea that God is not just dwelling with us, right? Recall Exodus chapter 25, verse 8, and recall dwelling in us, right? What uh, uh, Paul said in Colossians. John lets us know that the Holy Spirit dwells with us, which in the Greek word is going to be the word par, right here, and in us, which is the Greek word en. So, hati par human menekai in human estai, this last uh, phrase in the Greek there. The Holy Spirit dwells with us, right? Par human, and with us. He dwells with us and in us, I'm sorry. And this end is the same uh, same Greek root word there, en, en. Same word we found over uh, here to describe Christ dwelling us uh, in us. Same uh, word that uh, Paul used here where it talks about God. So in all three cases, God dwelling in us, en, Greek word. Christ dwelling in us, Greek word, en. And Holy Spirit dwelling in us, but also dwelling with us, par, which brings us full circle back to the uh, Exodus passage, where let them make me a sanctuary and I may dwell among them. God does dwell among us, but not just among us, God dwells within us. And with that, we'll close down the um, study on the uh, um, Shema, discussions on the issues of Trinity. Let's turn now to the liturgy, and we'll watch this short little video after the liturgy, and then we'll close our study from there. Uh, let me just read um, uh, uh, one quick passage from the liturgy. I won't wax long. Let me drop all the way down to the end of Deuteronomy chapter 6 um, and um, uh, uh, look uh, actually the uh, last two verses of Deuteronomy chapter 6, uh, verse 24 and 25. Moshe is commanding Israel to do all of the commandments. We noticed last week that he describes it as one single commandment. The Torah is a whole. It's a body of instruction that we are to receive as a whole. 
At the same time, it's comprised of or composed of individual commandments and statutes and judgments. And so Moshe says in verse 24, And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, plural, to fear the Lord our God for our good, always that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And so God is commanding a relationship with us through the commandments, plural, but we should also understand that, that this body of instructions stands as a whole. It's one piece of cloth that cannot be broken up into little pieces, ceremonial, civil, moral, you know, the three parts of the uh, Calvin's three uses or three parts. Um, sometimes we do a disservice by breaking the Torah up into all those little pieces. It will be righteousness for us. In verse 25, it says, if we are careful to do all this, commandment, singular, before the Lord our God, as he has commanded us. The Hebrew over on the um, right side of the screen says, um, but see, uh, and verse 25 says, so, next time you're reading through the Torah and you're reading all these do's and don'ts, just remember, from God's perspective, it's one instruction. It's one commandment. It is to be received as a whole, and it is to be implemented as a whole. Let's turn now to Romans 14 and read just... Um, a few verses there. Uh, I don't want to read, uh, again, spend too much time in the liturgy. We've, we've been reading this um, uh, uh, passage out of Romans 14, and I'm just going to drop down uh, to verse um, 13, uh, just this one verse for tonight. Um, Paul says, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather to decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Again, this word brother, Adelphos, Adelphon, or something to that effect. Do you suppose Paul could have had in, in mind not just your brother Christian, but also your brother covenantal Jew, who is a monotheistic Jew, he's bound in covenant to God, he's loyal to God's Torah. This is Paul's day, by the way. In today's, today's scenario, it might not work as well, but in Paul's day. Your brother covenant member, who, although he's not yet a member of, of the messianic community from the inside, right, he hasn't believed in Jesus, he's nevertheless investigating the matter, and he's interested in Israel's uh, Messiah, uh, Yeshua, and he wants to come into that relationship. Uh, what are you, the, the Christian Jew or Christian Gentile, going to do about that? Are you going to put a stumbling block in his way by telling him that the law is done away with? Are you going to put a hindrance in his way by telling him that he no longer needs to keep kosher or keep any festivals or anything like that? No stumbling block and hindrance. Or are you going to, you're going to brag to him about the fact that you're a Gentile or uh, brought into the into relationship with God without having to go through a Jewish conversion and that it's because that circumcision is no longer valid? Is that what you're going to brag about? That's just going to put a stumbling block and a hindrance in your brother covenantal, your covenant brother's way. Don't do that, Paul says. It just puts an entirely different um, meaning to this particular passage. Does it not? Let's continue to look at this next week. The Greek says, Make it the un alelus crinomen, ala tu tokenata malan to me tithenai praskama to adelpho e skandalon. And that'll be the liturgy for tonight. Let's turn now to the uh, video.
Welcome to A Minute or Two with the Word. I'm your host, Torah teacher Ariel, where every week or so, we take a look at a relevant passage of Scripture together as Jews and Gentiles in Messiah. I'd like to talk to you today about Israel's call to greatness. Deuteronomy chapter 4 contains what I like to call the, quote, Jewish Great Commission, in quote. Here, in verses 1 through 14, Moshe carefully instructs the community to live out the Torah in such a way that the surrounding nations will see and learn about the unique and awesome mercy of the one and only true God. Because of its significance, I want to quote verses 5 through 8 at length. See, I've taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us, whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? What makes this passage stand out is Israel's position and influence among the surrounding people groups, such a legacy to be the vessels to share the precious word of Hashem with those who have not heard. Doesn't this remind you of the intents and purposes of the Great Commission? In the Tanakh, the Torah emanated from Israel for the entire world to see. In the Apostolic Scriptures, Yeshua's Talmudim actually took the Torah to the world. Indeed, it is the very same good news that is contained within the Torah, the message of the mercy and grace of an all-loving, all-forgiving God who is intimately interested in the well-being of His created subjects, both Jew and non-Jew. And that'll do it for the video for tonight. Let's close with a word of prayer. Abba, I bless your name, and I thank you for the study. I thank you for the knowledge that Yeshua is our Messiah, and that his precious Holy Spirit comes and takes up residency within us. Thank you, Lord, that you sent your Son to die for us. Thank you that it is his sacrifice that brings us into a right relationship with you, Father, and that because of his obedience, that we can now stand before you cleansed, that we can stand before you righteous, we can we can be assured that we have um, a place uh, with you in the age to come, and that we can also know that on a day-to-day basis, even though we still reside here on earth with uh, these mortal bodies, we can be assured that your presence is with us. Indeed, your Holy Spirit is with us, causing us to praise Yeshua and to, to um, turn from sin and to confess our sin and to uh, 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 have a desire to live righteously, to be forgiving of our fellow man and to have that right relationship not just with you but with each other. Thank you, Lord, that this is a reality that we can uh, experience right now. We don't just have to wait for uh, our salvation to be fully actualized uh, once uh, you come and return us to yourself. We're actually living with this reality now, even though we know that one day uh, we will um, be changed and we will put on a glorious resurrected body, one that has no more sin. That is our blessed hope. Thank you, Lord, that you are drawing us close to yourself during these difficult times 
so heated and charged with with political tension and 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 uh, racial tension and and um uh, uh fear and, and there's just so much in the world lord that wants to command our attention and and draw us away from who you are and the realities of what you have um done for us uh but lord we're going to stay anchored in your word we're going to be rooted in your truths. We're going to keep reminding ourselves of, of who we are in Messiah, and that is the, the righteousness of God. You have called us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. Thank you for this truth. Continue to raise us up. Protect us as families. Be with us. Go with us. Give us a voice. Give us holy boldness as we witness to people around us. Give us an, an, an ever-awareness of, of your provision in our lives. Uh, taking care of us, even in the midst of our our unemployment, our 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 uh, furloughed, our our furloughs, our our um, uh, you know looking for employment, uh, all the uncertainty when it comes to uh, how are we going to put food on the table and things like that. Lord, you are our provider. We will look to you, and there is no other that who will uh, be that provider. Bless you, Lord, for all of the wonderful things that you're doing. Continue to to um, uh, draw us close, and you will be careful to give the praise and the glory of Yeshua. Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com. 